And I want to start off with a, with a quote from ancient history. It goes like this. It says, among all my conquests, there is but one now that comforts me. Out of all my conquests, there is but one now that comforts me. I have over- overcome my worst enemy. I have overcome my own haughty heart. The Roman emperor, Valentinian, reportedly said this on his deathbed. Now, when I came across this quote, I was interested in who Valentinian was. And it's hard to tell whether this quote came from the original Valentinian or his son or his grandson, who were also named Valentinian and were also Roman emperors. If it's from the original guy, the quote's impressive. For one, Valentinian had a lot of great accomplishments. He defended against attack and revolts. He was the last Roman emperor to conduct campaigns beyond the Danube and Rhine rivers. But it's impressive for more than just that. It's impressive that Valentinian supposedly overcame his heart because Valentinian had a really awful heart. For example, he would have his servants executed really on a whim for the slightest offenses. And you know how he would carry out those sentences? He would feed people to his two pet bears that he carried around with him all the time. So yeah, I would say if Valentinian really overcame his heart, that would be his greatest accomplishment. But as I was doing some you know, initial research, there is an alternative account to how Valentinian's life ended. It's reported that leaders from the Germanic tribe known as the Quadi people came to speak to Valentinian and they came to tell, tell him, you know what, we are through with the treaty that we signed with your forefathers. No longer will we live at peace with you. We are now going to attack the Roman forts that are in our territory. And when Valentinian heard this, he went into such an apoplectic rage He screamed so loud and so much that he burst a blood vessel in his head and he died. So much for overcoming his heart. (laughs) Now, whether Valentinian's outcome was noble or tragic, I think it illustrates the same point. That our hearts are the most important battlefield we face. It literally controls us. It can control us to the point that it even kills us. So today we're going to look at one aspect of our heart, the emotions of our hearts, what Proverbs talk about them. And maybe you've experienced something like me, that emotions can make us kind of like werewolves. They can take over us and control us to the point where it's like we're entirely different creatures. Now, if you've experienced this, it can be easy just to give up and resign to defeat to say that I'm just powerless against this conflict. So we say things like, well, you know, there's really no hope for me. I guess I'm just an angry person. Or I guess I'm just the jealous type. Um, I, I, I can never improve. I guess I'm just a people pleaser. So the question for us, is there hope? Is there any hope to overcome the emotions that so easily control us? Well, the answer from Proverbs is yes. But the answer might not be what you think it is. Because we can read Proverbs in such a way that we would keep our hope in ourselves, that we would keep our hope in our own strength. So just from the outset of our time, I want us to be very, very clear that when we think about where our hope is to overcome the emotions that so easily control us, we do not need to look horizontally. We need to look vertically. 
We need to lift our eyes up to the hills like Psalm 121 and ask, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We need to remember Romans 8.37, that we are conquerors, not in ourselves, but we are conquerors through him who loved us. We need to remember Galatians 5.22-23, that self-control is not a fruit that grows naturally on the tree of our hearts. No, self-control is a fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. We even need to remember that the wisdom of Proverbs begins with the fear of the Lord, not with ourselves. It begins with the worship and the trust and the delight and the desire to please the God who made us and saved us. At the outset of our time, we need to remember that our hope is not in ourselves, but in the Lord. We must remember that the wisdom of Proverbs can only be lived out by people who God has given a new heart. So when it comes to what seems like an insurmountable battle for our emotions, we can summarize what Proverbs has to say like this. It's printed on the backside of your bulletin if you want to look. The Lord gives us power and perspective to control the emotions that control us and even to display healthy emotions regardless of circumstances. We're going to see how God gives us that power and perspective ultimately through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, And kind of a roadmap for our time today is that we'll discuss three emotions that Proverbs highlights throughout the book. We'll discuss anger and jealousy and the fear of man. We'll dissect what these emotions look like. We'll try to see how to recognize these emotions in ourselves. And then we'll see the remedy that Proverbs offers to overcome these emotions. And then we'll see how God provides that same remedy, but even better in the gospel And then finally, we'll close with an alternative to being controlled by our emotions and where that comes from. All right, so first part of the map, first part of the journey, first emotion we'll talk about is anger. I invite you to look back at the list provided in your your bulletin, uh, and we'll look at some verses from Proverbs that talk about anger. As we read these, I want you to keep in mind what is exactly being spoken against here. Right, so look first at Proverbs 10, verse 12. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. 14, verse 17. It says, a man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. 14, 29. It says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 1632, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Finally, 19 verse 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So what is it actually is being spoken against? Is it just anger that is being spoken against or something a little more specific? I would say it's more specific. It's not anger in general that's being spoken against. It's, it's being quick to anger. It's not anger in general that's being spoken against. It's, it's, it's more specific. It's an unforgiving, graceless spirit. It's a vengeful spirit that seeks to selfishly get even. That's what's being spoken against. Now we can nuance this because sometimes it's wrong not to be angry. Just and righteous anger is a result of proper love and proper priorities. We remember that God himself gets angry. Romans 1.18 states it plainly, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
God gets angry in response to sin. Sin makes God angry in part because sin damages those people that God loves. Sin makes God angry in part also because it violates God's greatest priority, which is his own glory. So yet while it is just and right for God to be angry at sin, God also describes himself as being slow to anger. God has to be provoked to anger. Anger is not who God is. The Bible never says God is wrath. But the Bible does say God is love. God doesn't have to be prompted or provoked to love. We'd be, deep, we'd be in deep trouble if that was true because that would mean we'd have to earn God's love and that's something that you and I could never do. So God's love is unprovoked. He gives it freely, not, a, not as a result of our actions. God's anger, on the other hand, has to be provoked. He doesn't dispense it randomly. He does so only as a result of our actions. So again, Proverbs doesn't speak against anger in general. It speaks against being quick to anger and having a vengeful, unforgiving spirit. And some theology outside of that helps us understand that as well. But I I do think we need a warning here. I think you and I might take too much comfort from the fact that not all anger is sinful. One author warns us. He says, once we start focusing on exceptions, we'll identify all of our anger as an exception. So friends, let's just be honest here. You and I are quick to anger. You and I do have a vengeful, unforgiving spirit. And you know, it doesn't just come in one shape and size. It doesn't only look like uncontrollable, violent outbursts of rage. It it might look like this. When you are quick to anger, you are overconfident in your own evaluation and your own perspective. When you are quick to anger, you have this mindset that everybody else is wrong, but I'm right. When you're quick to anger, you think that the problem's not with me. The problem is with those people out there. When you're quick to anger, there's no slowing down. There's no slowing down to consider if you're seeing the entire picture. There's no slowing down to consider if you're maybe missing something. There's no slowing down to consider if you might be wrong. When you're quick to anger, it can look like a lot of different things. When you're quick to anger, you perceive any disagreement, any setback, as a personal slight against you. I appreciate Paul David Tripp's example of this. Uh, He he gives the example that if his kids are up an hour and a half after their bedtime and they're acting rambunctious, he he can take that as a personal threat against him, that a a personal offense. But he he reasons with himself. He says, it's not like my kids gathered together at 7.30 and conspired and said, you know, this is the night that we're really gonna tick off dad. Let's do it. No, but when you are quick to anger, you take everything personally. You don't tolerate interruptions. You don't put up with disagreement. You don't let anyone get in your way. You are on edge, ready to pounce all the time. Friends, quickness to anger doesn't just come in the form of violent outbursts. Maybe your quickness to anger is a quickness to be stubborn. That it doesn't take much for you to assert your own way. It doesn't take much for you to shut down and disengage. It doesn't take much for you to scoff and say, you know what, whatever. Maybe your quickness to anger is a seething, quiet bitterness. 
Maybe your quickness to anger is a quickness to complain and grumble. Friends, we need to enlarge the category of anger. Focus less on, our, on the exceptions. Remember that Jesus said that murder, the seed of it, comes from hating your brother in your heart. You and I are quick to anger. We do have vengeful, unforgiving spirits. And it's often really hard to recognize. You know why? Because being angry means that we are thoroughly convinced that we are right and we won't hear otherwise. So to help us recognize that, here are some diagnosis questions for you from Counselor Ed Welch. Uh, Good questions to ask yourself to see maybe anger that you're not seeing. Question number one, I I have six of them, they'll be quick. Uh, Question one, do I stretch and enlarge the category of anger so that it includes me? Dr. Welch writes, he says, I know a man who doesn't think he's angry, even though every hour or so he threatens to rip off somebody's head. (laughs) Because you know what his narrow definition of anger is? He says, an angry person actually rips off people's heads. Since I only want to rip off people's heads, then I'm not angry. (laughs) Diagnosis question two. In the last six months, have I confessed my sin of anger to both God and the injured person? Diagnosis question three. Is the real cause of my frustration or my anger usually something or someone other than me? Do I understand that the real cause of my anger is not them, and it's really what I want and what I'm not getting? For more on that, read James 4, 1 to 10. Diagnosis 4. Do I know that Jesus was never angry because of something done to him? And do I care about that? Diagnosis question number five. Am I ever wrong? Angry people against all odds are seemingly always right. Number six, consider God's patient question to Jonah. Do I do well to be angry? And once we recognize anger and a vengeful spirit in ourselves, what do we do? Where do we turn? What's the remedy for our anger and and how do we overcome it? Well, maybe we can, do, we can do this by putting some flesh and bones on it and thinking about a, a tangible story. I, I think of the life of King David. I've referred to scenes from his life the last few weeks. I think of a time when King David and his, and his uh, crew were on the run from, uh, from King Saul. And at, at one point in their fugitive journey, Harrison Ford-like, he's hiding in a cave. And Casablanca-like, out of all the caves in all the world, King Saul decides to stumble upon the cave that David is in. And the Bible decides to include the detail that it was in order to go to the bathroom that Saul went into this cave. But here was David's chance. The guy who has been hunting him to kill him, he was now defenseless. And even David's second in command says, David, come on, this is your shot. You've got to kill this guy. But what does David do? He refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. And afterwards, he's able to confront Saul about this. And he tells Saul, he says, listen, Saul, I had a chance to kill you, but I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Why? David says this, may the Lord avenge between you and me. Here is a hint to how we overcome our anger. Do you see what overcame David's anger? It was trusting in God's righteous anger and God's just judgment. That's what overcame 
David's anger. That's what caused Jesus to stay silent before those who mocked him and beat him and crucified him. First Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's right anger and God's just judgment is what's meant to overcome our quickness to anger and our vengeful spirit. Don't believe me, listen to Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. The bottom line is this. If you really didn't believe that God will right every wrong in the end, if you didn't believe that, then you would have every right to right every wrong done to you. Do you believe that God will right every wrong in the end? So when it comes to overcoming our anger, Proverbs talks about some immediate, some outward actions that we can do. 1727 says that we can limit our words. 2911 says that we can bite our tongues and not react immediately. There's wisdom to just slow down. There's wisdom to take time and think carefully. But you know, we need more than just a polished exterior. If we're gonna overcome our anger and our vengeful spirit, we need a transformed interior. So again, 1727, the second part of it says that we need a cool spirit. What is it that would cool down our regularly heated hearts? I think we could take this verse and look ahead and look to the gospel. Because in the gospel, it reminds us that we have offended God with our sin. But instead of blotting us out immediately, God has been slow to anger. And it is God's beautiful glory to overlook our offenses. But God didn't do that just by forgetting about our sin. God did that out of love. He covered our sin. God satisfied his right and just anger toward us. God, the one who was offended, paid for our offenses by giving his son to die in our place. Oh, friends, when you receive that good news, when you are consumed by that good news, when that is your heartbeat, oh, it should cool off your hot heart. It should make you say something like this. If, if God has been slow to anger for me, if God has graciously forgiven me, if God has covered my offense at the cost to himself, who am I to withhold that from other people? The second emotion we'll talk about is jealousy. Once again, we want to be clear about what exactly is being spoken against. Let's take a look at a few Proverbs that speak about jealousy or even envy. Proverbs 6.34 says, Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. 14.30, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. 24.19-20, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? 
Jealousy is zeal for something that someone else has that you think belongs to you. And jealousy and envy are different from anger. One pastor writes, anger at its best is reacting against something that's wrong. But jealousy and envy is reacting against something that's right and good. And look back at what these Proverbs say about why jealousy and envy are so bad. They're so bad because of their destructive consequences. Jealousy and envy will destroy yourself. One verse says it makes the bones rot. Jealousy and envy are so bad because they destroy others. One verse says, who can stand before jealousy? We think of the destructive consequences of these throughout the Bible from various characters. I think of Satan himself. Satan dwelled before God as an angel. And in his pride, Satan fell because he was envious of God's greater glory. He was envious of something that God had that he thought he deserved. And that destroyed himself and destroyed many others. I think of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4, the very first murder. Later on in the Bible, 1 John says that Cain didn't despise his brother because of the wrong that he did to him. No, Cain despised his brother Abel because Abel was righteous and Cain wasn't. Cain was jealous of Abel and that destroyed him and it destroyed his brother. I think even of Jesus. Why did the religious authorities hate Jesus? It wasn't because they were angry at how bad Jesus was. It was because they were jealous because of how good Jesus was. When they brought Jesus to stand before Pontius Pilate, remember what Pilate knew. Matthew 27 verse 18 says, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered up Jesus. And and just like anger and and, uh, a vengeful spirit can be hard to spot and recognize in ourselves, so can jealousy and envy. I think Proverbs 24, 19 to 20 can give us a clue about how to recognize these in, our, in ourselves. Look, at, look again at, at those verses. What is the envious person doing in those verses? You see, he's fretting, but even underneath that, he just has this simple action that he looks around at the people around him and he compares his life to theirs and then gets jealous. So here's the hint. That the beginning and the fuel of jealousy and envy is comparison. The beginning and fuel of jealousy and envy is comparison. Maybe you resonate with one of these scenarios. A child delights in their drawing, but then he sees the drawing of the kid next to him, compares, crumbles it up. Teenager scrolls social media, compares herself to others, looking for ways to improve her looks, her possessions, her number of followers. Jealousy and envy quickly strike. A college student works hard, but uh, is discouraged when he compares himself to others and sees his peers' academic or athletic accomplishments. Perhaps parents are, are doing fine in their parenting, but then they see other parents that seem to be immaculately perfect. They compare themselves and get discouraged and maybe jealous or envious. Maybe it's the happy family photos. Maybe it's the announcement of an engagement, the announcement of a pregnancy, news of a job promotion that makes you compare yourself to others. That that reminds you of everything that other people have and everything that you don't have. And after that comparison, jealousy and envy strike. But friends, what do we do about this? What do we do when we recognize jealousy and envy in ourselves? 
Well, Proverbs gives at least two remedies to overcome jealousy and envy. Two remedies are perspective and a tranquil heart. Look once again at 24, 19 to 20. It tells us one way to overcome envy, especially envy of those who don't trust in Christ, is by having an eternal perspective. It's by knowing that this life is like a breath on a cold day. It appears and it is quickly gone, but that the life to come is eternal. So having having an eternal perspective changes what we prioritize. Hebrews 11 talks about this over and over again. Hebrews 11.28 says that Moses had an eternal perspective. He had such an eternal perspective that it says he considered even the ridicule that came with following Christ as more valuable than the fleeting treasures of Egypt. So an eternal perspective is at least one remedy, but the other comes in 1430. Another remedy for jealousy or envy is a tranquil or a calm heart. It says this is what gives life to the flesh as opposed to envy giving rot to the bones. And the question becomes, how do you get a calm heart? I think this begs us again to look ahead to how God ultimately gives us a calm heart in the gospel. Remember that the gospel tells us that God's anger is just and his anger for us is satisfied. And that should calm our anger. But the gospel also tells us that God is perfectly and lovingly jealous. God is jealous for his own glory. That our salvation is entirely from God. The credit and the glory for it belong to nobody else. So our jealousy should be directed first toward defending the Lord, not toward defending ourselves. The gospel also tells us that God is jealous for the people he has saved. James 4, 5 says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God has purchased us in Christ and he doesn't want anything or anyone else to have us. So when you know this, when you know that Christ has you and you have Christ, this can begin to calm your heart. This can begin to give you a heart that's not jealous or envious, but a heart that is grateful and content. This can begin to give you a heart that's not caught up in comparison, but that's freed because you have him. That's how John the Baptist could be okay with the crowds no longer flocking to him, but to flock to Jesus. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase. I must decrease. That's how the Apostle Paul could be fine with other pastors getting the limelight when he was thrown into prison. Even when those pastors preached out of bad motives, Paul was fine because Christ was preached. Pastor Ray Ortland says this, when Christ, not self, is who matters most to us, it frees us to be happy, even when we're shoved aside, even when we're overlooked, even when we're passed by. Emotion number three from Proverbs is the fear of man. Look with me at two, two Proverbs, 28.1 and 29.25. 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It's pretty obvious what's being spoken against directly in the second verse, fearing people. And the results of fearing people are also pretty obvious, just like they were for jealousy and anger. Those who fear people become paranoid. They become cowardly and they even become entrapped. And just like anger and jealousy, we'll understand the fear of man better, not just when we define it, but when we see it in action. 
We see people acting out of their fear of people all throughout the Bible. I think of Abraham back in Genesis. Abraham is supposed to be the father of all who have faith, right? On two different occasions, Abraham and his wife travel to foreign territory. And what does Abraham do? He lies about who his wife is, and he puts her in harm's way. And why did Abraham do this? Out of fear of people. Soon after, God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. He called up Moses to the top of Mount Sinai to give Moses the law. And when Moses delayed, what did the people do? Well, they made a God of their own image. They made a golden calf. And who was it that fashioned the golden calf? It was Moses' brother Aaron. That's right. And why did Aaron do this? Because Aaron feared the people. I think of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a good king. He stood stalwart against the threatening Assyrian Empire. And after God extended his life by 15 years, Hezekiah gets a visit from the Babylonians. And what did Hezekiah do? He shows off his riches. And why? Well, because Babylon was a new and upcoming powerful empire. And Hezekiah, he feared them. I think about Peter. Peter's defiant vow to Jesus. I will never deny you. Minutes after that, Peter tried to cut off a guy's head to defend Jesus. It says he cut off his ear. It's probably because he was ducking, right? (laughs) And what happens right after that? Peter crumbles before a servant girl and denies that he even knows Jesus. Why? Because Peter feared people. The fear of man lays a snare. So how do we recognize that in ourselves? Well, we remember that when the Bible uses the word fear, it doesn't always mean being scared or afraid. It's more to it than that. From these examples, you can tell who you fear by who you desire to please the most. You can tell who you fear by who you desire to please. Now, I want to acknowledge that this desire can come from a lot of different places, including a place of people mistreating you in your past. And also, I want to acknowledge that we do not go out of our way to displease people. That would be called being a jerk. (laughs) I do want us to see, though, that we function so much more than we realize out of a fear of people, out of a desire to please people. And that desire shows up in a fear of people's rejection. So I'll give you a few examples, and I'll start you off with a silly one, okay? Silly one. I'll be driving in my car alone, and I don't know if you're like this alone, but when I'm in the, I feel a little more free in the car to just, just sing my heart out, right? So maybe it's to don't stop believing, windows will be down, wind, uh, music turned up, and then I'll come to a red light. <laughs> person next to me. And what happens? I've become a civilized person again. I turn down the music, and Why? Because for some reason, I want to please the person who I will likely never see again in the car next to me. And I am scared of their rejection. A little more seriously, my fellow Christ follower, consider this example. When you and I hesitate to talk about faith in Christ with someone who does not have faith in Christ, we hesitate usually Because we want to please that person and we fear the rejection. Is anybody like me and has a hard time saying no to things? 
and saying no to people. Okay, I'm probably the only one. That's all right. Uh, While we probably have a lot of good intentions when you say yes to everything, you also likely do that out of a desire to please people and you fear their rejection. If you fixate on your appearance, whether you're constantly discouraged by it or you're obsessive to improve it, that's probably your desire to please people. It's a fear of their rejection. It's subtly thinking, if only I look good, then other people will like me or even be impressed with me. If you are like me and a bit of a perfectionist, if you always second-guess your decisions and your work because of what other people might think, if you worry that your performance will make you look bad to other people, you'll likely do good work, but you are also likely entangled with the desire to please people because you fear the rejection. You know what's scary is that our desire to please people and our fear of their rejection even shows up at church. See, you and I can subtly think that all the people at church don't have any big problems and don't fight against serious sin. So in order to keep their approval and in order to fit in, you hide all of your big problems and you hide all of your struggles against sin. The desire to please people and the fear of their rejection affects even pastors. Pastors avoid hard passages from the Bible. Pastors avoid difficult conversations. Pastors avoid the full gospel and just talk about life tips because of their desire to please people because they fear their rejection. So can't you see, friend, why the fear of man is a snare? So what do we do? What's the remedy for this? How do we overcome the fear of man? Well, look again at 29, 25. It says that the opposite of the fear of man is trust in the Lord. To put it differently, to overcome the fear of man, we must fear the Lord. Now, that can be really shallow advice, I know. You never like to hear, you know, just trust in the Lord. But think again about who we fear the most is who we desire to please the most. When we desire to please people more than we desire to please God, we've made people bigger than God is. And see, when you reverse that, when you treat God as if he actually is bigger than people, oh my goodness, it's so freeing. Because then you no longer need people to do for you what only God can do for you. Instead of needing people for ourselves, then we can love them for the glory of God. And if you want to think more about this, uh, you can borrow my copy of what is an excellent book, When People Are Big and God is Small. Again, it's by Dr. Ed Welch. Um, It's my copy, so please steward it very well. (laughs) Come see me afterwards. The old British pastor, Charles Bridges, says this about the fear of man. He says, the man who is dependent on the world for happiness is in bondage. The servant of God is in liberty. It matters not to him whether or not the world smiles or frowns, because he has God's smile. God's approval, secured for him in Christ. Because of Jesus, he is forgiven and accepted. This makes him safe, like the verse says, beyond the reach of what any person can do to him. Now, finally, just briefly in closing, I want to talk about an alternative way. So far, we've really only talked about the negative emotions and reactions we have and how to overcome them. And I hope you've been able to see that the gospel gives us resources to have self-control and restraint. That because of things like God satisfying his just anger in Christ, because of God making us his own and jealously loving us, that because of God giving us his approval by uniting us to Jesus, that because of all these things, we don't have to be controlled by our emotions, that we can control them. 
But I, I want to be clear that that doesn't mean that we're just brought back to even, that now we're just numb and unaffected by anything, that we repress any kind of emotion we feel. Because when Proverbs 1, like uh, 29, verse 11, talks about holding back our spirit instead of venting, we should read that alongside other parts of the Bible, including the Psalms, including Christ's own experience. We should still say that we feel sadness and hurt and frustration. And those feelings, though they don't have to control us, God does invite us to pour them out to him. The alternative is that what we are saying is that our emotions don't have to have the final word on our hearts. What we feel does not have to have the final word on our hearts. That's because we don't lean on our emotions. We stand on the truth. And by the way, that's not just how we approach life in general. It's also how we approach even what goes on here. It's how we, uh, it informs how we approach music and preaching. It's not that emotions are bad. We want to stir our emotions and direct them towards the Lord. We want to be joyful. But that is not our first goal. Our first goal is not an emotional response. Our first goal is standing on the truth. We want the truth to stir our emotions, not just techniques and not just manipulation. That informs how we go about music and even how we go about preaching. You can talk to me more about that if you want. If you want. So here, the alternative of being controlled by your emotions is that regardless of what emotion you have, you can have a continual feast. That's what Proverbs 15, 15 says. All the, desi- all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Now, what is this feast? Well, from this verse, we can at least discern that this feast is something that's internal, not external. This verse doesn't say those who have cheerful circumstances have a continual feast. It says those who are cheerful of heart have a continual feast. And once again, this verse, I think, begs us to look ahead to the gospel, to look ahead to a place like Ephesians 3, where it is described that we have unsearchable riches in Christ. It can never, we can never reach the bottom of it. We can always see more and more of Christ's love and beauty that's displayed in his character, at his cross, in his resurrection, and in his reign. So this means that no matter what we're feeling, you and I can be like the cactus, Right? How in the world does a cactus survive in a desert under the blaze of the sun? Why well, I looked it up. <laughs> and it's because a cactus is uniquely made with its spines and its grooves so that it absorbs any trace of water it can get. It absorbs the morning dew every single morning, and it doesn't just survive, it thrives. Brothers and sisters, there will be many a day when you and I feel mastered by our emotions, when we feel like we are in desert-like conditions under the blaze of trial. So that's when you let the uh, finished work of Christ be your morning dew, be your continual feast. That's when you let the Father's verdict of not guilty be your continual feast, your morning dew. That's when you let the truth that the Holy Spirit dwells in those who belong to Christ That is your continual feast so that no matter what you may be feeling, you can know no matter what that you belong to your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, our our hearts are 
so, so random and weak and tossed to and fro. God, we are, we are really fragile. We are so easily thrown off. We so easily get angry. We so easily get jealous. We so easily fear the opinions of others and just operate out of that. So, Lord, we desperately need you. We need your stability and your perfection. We need your forgiveness. We need your power to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so, God, would you make each one of us gospel-centered, even in how we approach our emotions? Through the gospel, would you help us to regulate the emotions that so naturally control us? And through the gospel, would you give us assurance that even on our worst days, the wrath of God is satisfied and we are your children because of Christ, not us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.